is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing a trove of madcap brilliance that has entertained generations of fans and inspired countless of writers and artists over the years. Today, we're talking about some of the greatest cartoons of all time, Warner Brothers' Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes got their start in 1930 as an effort to compete with Walt Disney's Silly Symphonies series of animated shorts that were sold to movie theaters as warm-up acts for feature films. Warner Brothers soon followed up uh, Looney Tunes with a companion series called Merry Melodies, which was nominally more musically oriented than Looney Tunes, but soon the two series lost any real distinction and were collectively referred to just as Looney Tunes. The series really hit its stride during World War II and afterwards, when a team of insanely talented animation directors, Frank Tashlin, Tex Avery, Bob Clampett, Robert McKimson, Frizz Frailing, and Chuck Jones, occupied a rundown old building that they called Termite Terrace. From there, and driven by an obsession with cracking each other up, Termite Terrace cranked out an enormous number of theatrical shorts that each ran around five to seven minutes, basically so they could fit on a single projector reel. Fueling this nonstop hit streak of creative anarchy were many of the best animators in the business, the musical genius of Carl Stalling, and studio executives who wisely knew enough to stay the heck out of the way. Termite Terrace invented a deep bench of beloved Looney Tunes characters that included Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Elmer Fudd, Foghorn Leghorn, Marvin the Martian, Porky Pig, Speedy Gonzalez, Sylvester the Cat, the Tasmanian Devil, Tweety Bird, Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, and Yosemite Sam. And that's in addition to the dozens of smaller characters who might have only appeared in one or two cartoons but still captured a devoted audience. Looney Tunes racked up an impressive 22 Academy Award nominations over the years. Five of them, Tweety Pie, for sentimental reasons, Speedy Gonzalez, Birds Anonymous, and Nighty Night Bugs actually won Oscars. And a handful of Looney Tunes have been inducted into the National Registry of the Library of Congress. The series shifted from theatrical releases to TV in 1960, but by then the number of new Looney Tunes had dwindled to a trickle, and Warner Brothers finally shut things down in 1969. But Looney Tunes lived on for decades more in syndication. And in 1979, the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie, a box office re-release of some of Chuck Jones's greatest hits, was so successful that it launched a Saturday morning cartoon show, the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Show. And that was to make sure that new viewers didn't miss out on these classics. Since then, the Looney Tunes universe has lived on in many different iterations with none of the old ones ever really going away making these cartoons a kind of perpetual background phenomenon. We can't go a day without encountering a Looney Tunes character or cartoon or something inspired by one. This is really just a Looney Tunes kind of world and we're all living in it. So let's get started. With me today is Pismo Beach summertime resident, Chris Crenshaw. Yeah, what's up doc? Acme Rocket Pack salesman, Tom Hespos. Where is my Illudium Q36 explosive space modulator? An anvil and pulley specialist, Joe Pace. Kid, don't quit talking so much. He'll get his tongue sunburned. <laughs> Everyone, welcome. I'm going to laugh so much this episode. Oh, my gosh. All right, but before we get started on all the fun, though, uh, we have to start on, on kind of a more serious note. We have to address, frankly, we were talking about Warner Brothers cartoons and Looney Tunes. We have to address the elephant in the room, which is that these cartoons, many of them are 60, 70, 80, 90 years old, and they are they are artifacts of the time in terms of social outlook. And so there is more than a little bit of racism and misogyny in a lot of Warner Brothers cartoons, many of which are, have been kind of vaulted for just that reason. 
But I think, you know, before we get started, I'd like to read some text that appeared at the beginning of the Looney Tunes Golden Collection. Uh, now, that is a volume of six four-CD box sets that Warner put out from 2003 to 2008. It's about as close as you can get to a commercially available definitive set of Looney Tunes. And it says this, the cartoons you are about to see are products of their time. They may depict some of the ethnic and racial prejudices that were commonplace in American society. These depictions were wrong then and are wrong today. While the following does not represent the Warner Brothers view of today's society, these cartoons are being presented as they were originally created because to do otherwise would be the same as claiming these prejudices never existed. So before we get into what we love about these cartoons, let's discuss this really unfortunate aspect of it because it's something that still makes the rounds today. It still provides fresh you know, fodder for headlines. And I think it's something that's really worth discussing. So I'll open up the floor because I know we've all got thoughts on this and I think we should share them. So guys, I, I open the floor to you. One of the things I wanted to say, Bill, was like, you know, as this Looney Tunes Golden Collection was released, you know, from 2003 to 2008. So, you know, we're, we're talking about a significant length of time ago. What I found was I thought that Warner Brothers probably had one of the most elegant sort of like handlings of this issue. And like the text you just read appeared on each of the DVDs that were released. I think it was starting in the third release or so. There was a little like intro narrative by Whoopi Goldberg. And uh, I think she did a fantastic job of providing what, you know, I I wish a lot of other folks who are facing this issue today would do, which is provide context. Go ahead and and admit that like these things, you know, happened. We're not going to do anything uh, as far as, you know, trying to make it seem like the, the slights weren't the slights that they were. Mm-hmm. And, you know, acknowledging that they existed, acknowledging that they're wrong. I mean, like Whoopi hit it out of the park with, with their, all of her introductions to these things. If you look far enough back, you see a lot of this type of uh, racism because it reflects, you know, how American society was. Yeah. Uh, you do need, however, to put it in context. And I think Warner Brothers did a fantastic job of doing that in like, you know, <laughs> 2005, which, yeah. uh, you know, is terrific uh, yeah. that that, you know, still holds up today. <laughs> that handling of it still holds up. Yeah, it, that text to me it's it's implicit, you know, it these were our views and yeah. we were wrong. I mean, it, it's not yeah. the same people. It, you know, this is Warner Brothers accepting that they had that they perpetrated yeah. this stuff, which yeah, I think that's a good you know, thing. We're we're sitting here, we're taping this really within a week of the Dr. Seuss estate's decision mm-hmm. to not release certain back catalog um sort of b or c level dr seuss books that had really troubling racial stereotypes and imagery associated yeah. with them and so this is a sort of an ongoing collective reevaluation that we've been doing now for a number of years around our cultural heritage yeah. and yeah. Uh, acknowledging and coming to terms with the fact that we have consumed artists and art whose whose work is really troubling and was reflective of a time when our social views, as Tom put it, were troubling. To just turn a blind eye and pretend it never happened is not the correct approach. To continue to consume them blithely and not confront or, or grapple with the, um, the depictions is also wrong. So there's got to be a middle way. And, and to your point, this framing and putting in context, we saw it with Turner Classic Movies and what they did with the presentations of Gone with the Wind, where they say, this is a seminal historical work, and yet there's a lot in it that's wrong, and let's talk about that. Um, before and after and during as, as we consume it. And so I think there's a real effort to not destroy this stuff and pretend it never happened and then not to ignore it, but to really understand it in a yeah, way that yeah. allows us to, to move forward and, and be a better 
society than we were then. One of the things I noticed as I was rewatching a ton of these cartoons, and I did rewatch a ton of these cartoons before this episode, I was going through and I was kind of marking them off like, all right, which one was a Bugs Bunny cartoon? Which one was a Daffy Duck cartoon? Which one was an other cartoon? And then I just had my indicted list. Like, which one is like, just not cool, man. Am I going to talk about it? You know, there were a fair number that went into the indicted list and they, they deserved to be there. This, the core concept of the cartoon was just inherently racist or inherently misogynist or just inherently was punching down. And it was of the kind of thing that at that time when they made it, that was that was deemed to be okay. It wasn't okay, but it was deemed to be. There were a large number of cartoons also, though, that were just funny, good, solid cartoons. And they just couldn't help themselves. Right? The, like in the final seconds, yeah. like the final laugh, they chuck in this like ugly racial stereotype. It's ugly comment of women. I'm like, guys, you were right there. Like you were like, you were three seconds from finish. Did you have to sneak? Why did you have to slip that one under the door? I mean, honestly. All it takes is one exploding cigar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now it can work for Benny. Yeah, like, no. Uh, like <laughs> My father always said that one uh, shitty wipes out 10 and attaboys. And, uh, yeah. and it's true. You can have, a you know, seven funny minutes wiped out by five seconds of, of stupid. Yeah. People fight back. They push back against this yeah. effort. Because they're like, why do you have to cancel, right? With the, that's the, the, you know, the popular phrase, cancel yeah. culture. You're not canceling anything. You're trying to understand it and you're trying to do better and you're trying to push yeah. forward, but it's work, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's work to, to parse what's funny from what's punching down, right? And, yeah. and so how do you do that? We look back at these things and we look at a character of Bill, you mentioned Speedy Gonzalez. Yeah. Is that, a, is that a, a troubling ethnic stereotype or is it not? You know, I look at Yosemite Sam. Is this something where, you know, we're making fun of a, you know, lower class, rural, American, yes. rural you know, creature. And, and so you have to start to pin down what makes something offensive or what makes something allowable. And, and, and people don't want to engage in that work. And, and friends yeah. of mine who work in, in, the, in the diversity um, field, they talk about it. It's work. Yeah. And some people don't want to do the work. Well, the first task is to accept that the task even exists. That is itself, it can be a really large thing depending on where you are. You know, there are a lot of people who just don't want to acknowledge that the work is there waiting to be done. And it's been building interest for like 70, 80 years. And, you know, it's not going to get easier if you let it sit longer, guys. If you think back to when we were watching these, I mean, I was watching them in, in syndication on the, on the afternoons. I, and mm-hmm. I, I love them. I, I would watch an hour of Looney Tunes and Tom and Jerry, like every afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, on, on the weekdays, you would get the older Merry Melodies and you would get a lot of that more troubling stuff. Yeah. And, you know, looking back, our parents were just letting the television babysit us, of course. And holy smokes, I saw a lot of things I should not have seen. And I, I would not yeah. want my kids to yeah. see without providing context. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a miracle. I'm not a much worse person than I actually am. <laughs> which is bad enough. So two characters really stuck out to me as I was watching. One was Pepe Le Pew. I just gave him a blanket indictment. I'm like, you know, just the core concept of the character. There's sort of a, a farcical nature to him. There's looking for love in the wrong place. There's mistaken identity. There are funny bits to it. But at the core, it's about unwanted romantic advances. And it's at a time when that was okay. And, you know, it's very, very loaded. And so for me, I'm okay with just going, you know what? It's all indicted. Boom. <laughs> over to the side, right? Not long before we recorded this episode, the news broke because, you know, there's an ongoing culture war of all kinds. There must always be new fronts on, on in the war. News came out that Warner Brothers was not going to include Pepe Le Pew in the upcoming Space Jam 2 movie, and they would not be developing any new Pepe Le Pew content because the concept of the character is inherently sexist and misogynist and, you know, rape culture and all kinds of things. 
there are immediately a lot of people though who are like, oh my God, cancel culture run amok. And to that, I was like, you know what? There are 1,039 Looney Tunes, okay? 17 of them are Pepe Le Pew. We can live without Pepe Le Pew. We just can't. We just, there are still more than a thousand cartoons if you get rid of all Pepe Le Pew. They're not so good, even though one of them won an Academy Award, which honestly kind of boggles one my mind. Won an Academy Award. Academy. And frankly, <laughs> that one's the most offensive one to me because he, threatens, he threatens suicide to get a girl to come out of like a barricade yeah. for him. Like, oh, what the hell? Right? So it's like these cartoons can really go away, even if they are gems, even if they're fantastic and beloved. You know what? The body work is big enough. It can absorb that body blow. And frankly, you know what? And I know there are people out there who are really not going to want to hear this, but if we're trying to create a culture where our efforts to entertain ourselves and each other are done with a minimal amount or non-existent amount of hurting people who don't need to be hurt, of, of just avoiding punching down, of avoiding casual cruelty, if along the way we have to say goodbye to something that we otherwise really quite like for some reason, that's going to have to be a cost of doing business. Otherwise, it, it, these things are not, you can't parse it so closely that you can really keep it without going, well, why is it so important to you that you're keeping a sexual, a serial sexual harassment character in the public field? Why do you need that there? Is he, you know, I, I don't know. Oh, no, it, it's not so much that, you know, like nobody's taking away the old episodes. You can still get them. They're still freely yeah, available. Yeah. Uh, I have them. Uh, so, <laughs> I have them. I have them. I have the whole box set right here. Yeah, they're right, they're right there. They're right there. <laughs> not hard well, to find. You know, if you're not going to develop, you know, new content because the yeah. character has, you know, that kind of a flaw. I mean, like, who can't live with that decision? I mean, it's like, yeah, we're we're taking this character out of circulation because you know, the, the whole core concept of it is flawed. Like, I, you can't you can't like have have give Pepe Le Pew redemption and just sort of like wash it all away you know that you uh, there's nothing you can do with that character that uh, that's going to bring him around and and make it okay but you could bring him through a whole you know sexual harassment training with that <laughs> yeah but but everybody would take that ironically yeah <laughs> you have to do one where he's called on the carpet right there would have to be some well, like... well apparently that was the scene that was going to be in space jam 2 which was he was going to do his thing and a female cat was going to turn around and just just like no Bam! And, and, and just belt him and knock him out. And the guy voicing Pepe Le Pew was like, well, I actually kind of wanted that to be there because I'd like for women to see that it's okay, you know, that, to turn and defend yourself. And I hear him, but at the same time, and by the way, four fairly privileged middle-aged white guys on this podcast, okay? Let's just let's just check our privilege it right here and said. acknowledge it, okay? We have had to suffer none of the slights that we're talking about. I'm, I'm certain that Space Jam 2 will not suffer a 40-point drop in Rotten Tomatoes because it's failing to include Pepe Le Pew. Or maybe it will. I don't know. Maybe the toxic folks will come out and they'll they'll bomb it, but who knows? Hey, you know, can I say one thing about Pepe Le Pew? Because I was going to bring this up in Thunder Round, and now that's kind of washed away. But in his debut, there are two really weird things. First of all, it's it's a man he is harassing. It's a, a male cat. Yes. Um, yeah. And yeah. and and so that doesn't make it better, yeah. but it makes yeah. it different. It does. It does. <laughs> and 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 second, at the end of it, he is revealed to be not a not a French skunk, but you know, an American polecat who has adopted an accent in an attempt to not manipulate this man into bed and he's caught by his wife and pounded. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> so the other character that I thought about a lot was Speedy Gonzalez, which we mentioned before. He was yeah. a relatively late addition to the Looney Tunes lineup, right? He was like one of the last 
if not the last major character to be introduced. I don't know what what was the deal over at Termite Terrace. Like they just had this like Southwestern American Mexican fixation for a couple of years. And they just put like a lot of the cartoons were themed in that zone. Uh, and they pushed a lot of Speedy Gonzales. And here's the thing is that I think it was like in 1999, Nickelodeon got the rights to broadcast Warner Brothers cartoons and immediately came up like, what are you going to do about Speedy Gonzales, right? He is deemed a offensive stereotype of Hispanic characters. We just don't want it. So they pulled him from rotation, right? And then a funny thing happened is that during that time, a lot of people from the community they were trying to not offend were like, hey, 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 hey we're Speedy. Like, he's our boy. We like him a lot. He's something we see as a as a as a role model. We like seeing ourselves in him. He's the hero. He always gets he always wins. He always wins. He's always helping out other downtrodden mice. He always gets the better of a bigger, dumber bad guy. Like, bring him back. And like, okay, sorry. They brought him back in, in 2002 when he came back. But the funny thing is, all the while, they were still broadcasting all those cartoons in Latin America, where he was and remained and is and will always be rather popular. Again, there's this effort of you want to make sure you're not doing the wrong thing by perpetuating negative stereotypes. But as as you're saying, Tom, with with what Wiki was saying, context matters. And it's 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 helpful when you're I think it's it's worthy and worthwhile and mandatory that we do this work. It's also we need to make sure that we do it with full context and understand the whole thing. And in our rush to and a rush to address wrongs that we or our ancestors have done, you can try to repay that debt in the wrong way. And I think it's important to try to do your best to make sure that you don't create additional harm, you know, while you're, while you're trying to deal with something. And so, and and I think that's something that Warner Brothers is going to struggle with for a long time with the, with these cartoons. Well, you know, I think we can all agree though, that the, um, you know, some of those downtrodden mice that were around Speedy that he was trying to help, like, Oh, that's probably where they can do the most work. And again, you know what? This is really better addressed by somebody who is who 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 feels himself seen in this particular content, right? Um, and, and, and by the way, to everybody who's listening, okay, and this is not just this episode, this is moments of truth in general, okay? One thing the four of us have talked about is that we would love to bring on more guest speakers on our episodes, and we would love to bring in people from all different kinds of walks of life and points of view. And so, y'all, if you want to get in on this, no, send us a raven and we'll be happy to, to clue you in because there is definitely room on the table for one more. And frankly, we would love for somebody to come in who can, you know, basically not be the same, the same as the four of us, uh, you know, because we, we do tend to have kind of a mono view, you know. With Speedy, though, I kind of wondered how much of their of cultural appropriation was going on there, really, because like they made Speedy the good guy. In any given Speedy cartoon, I saw love letters to that culture and I saw cheap shots taken at that culture at the same time. And I kept thinking, hmm... 1958, how accepted really was the Latinx and, and the Hispanic community in this country, really, right? And how much of it was just taking this culture they thought was fun and attaching to something, you know, and, and that's where that's where cultural appropriation really kind of lands. And I, I thought about that a lot with Speedy. And honestly, it's a question I'd love to have answered. I'm not the one to answer it. I don't think anybody in this podcast is the one to answer it, uh, but I think it would be worth getting into because he's one of these characters that I think is... Um, He's like right at the the point of the discussion of like, you know, how do you reckon with what you've done in the past and how do you how do you separate the stuff that works from the stuff that hurts? And it's a job that will always be going on. And you know what? It's worthy work. And I'm glad it's being done. So with that in mind, let's move on to our moments of truth. Uh, and now we can get into just straight up giggling because I'm going to laugh like a doofus this episode. I can tell you that right now. Chris, I'm going to hand the mic over to you for our first moment of truth because you're going to talk about the poster boy of this whole thing. And I know you talked about getting into what is probably the single finest cartoon in all Looney Tunes, if not the universe. So Chris, take it away. Bugs Bunny. 
is in 167 of the original Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies shorts um, filmed up to 1964, which is the most of, of any of, of the Looney Tunes characters, followed by Porky and Daffy. He is the most or uh, the, the ninth most portrayed film personality in the world. Meaning he, he has been on screen is there, is that really more than nearly anybody. That's astonishing. I love it. He's got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And, and he, as you say, he, he is the poster boy. He's the face of the Looney Tunes. His Brooklyn accent, his cigar or carrot a cigar shtick, and his insouciant wit are or, or were everything to me as a kid. I, I, I absolutely loved him. I was I was the skinny kid. You know, if I was going to win anything, it was going to, I was going to do it by my wits. And <laughs> that was Bugs. He could invert any hierarchy. He could flip any script. Yeah. And his ingenuity is just boundless and, and infectious and uh, wondrous. I, I love Bugs Bunny. He's, he's just tops. What he first appeared in, uh, I think, 1940. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's, <sighs> 80 years now that's a long time yeah he predates he, yeah he, he predates predates world war ii like he's, he's you know he's... And, and so i there's there's so much to him you know yeah. like yeah. in a lot of ways these looney tunes characters are are like comic book characters because they're fairly thin characters that are just reiterated you know spat onto the screen in different situations you know week after week after week after week in these serials or you know in these shorts they're hard to define. Yeah, is what I'm saying. You know, there, there's there's the coherent Daffy Duck, and there's the completely mental Daffy Duck, right? <laughs> um, yeah, there is. There's there there is the the trickster Bugs Bunny, and there's the vengeful Bugs Bunny. Do you remember? Do you remember the one with the the rabbit and the hare? I, the, that race? The, the, the tortoise and the hare. Yeah, yeah. He was like he was bitter and resentful and like vicious vicious. that was a that was a rare bugs bunny like that was that was rough (laughs) no question that bugs is a sociopath and he exists oh yeah he is he is he is a he is a sociopath that's usually aimed in the right direction happily yeah (laughs) stereotypes by the way like he's like a new yorker right like that's the whole right yeah yeah, but not just any New Yorker. Guy. He, he, he's, he's from a specific borough of New York. I mean, he's like, he's, he's from a very particular well. That guy. He, he's done it all, of course, and and, and he's in so many of my very favorites. Uh, Nighty Night Bugs with uh, Yosemite Sam as the Black Knight. That's also oh. that also was uh, another Academy Award winner, and, and yeah. that's the one he won the Academy Award for. Which is funny because. The- there were a bunch of others he got. One. Yeah, and I saw it elsewhere. Uh, him winning that, him winning the Academy Award for that one is kind of like Al Pacino getting the Oscar for Sin of a Woman. Like there are other, kinda. There are other ones he deserved it for. <laughs> I agree. It's not his best, but it's no, good. No. And, uh, um, Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, yeah pretty exactly. much. Pretty much. <laughs> and, and I will say, you know, you mentioned What's up? What's Opera Doc. Uh, I mean, just Spear and Magic Helmet. Well, I mean, that, 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 well, that's where I'm going. I yeah. mean, it, it, I, I feel like there's two things I want to say about this particular cartoon. What's Opera Doc uh, is uh, 1947, I believe. It is the third of, to my knowledge, three Bugs Bunny opera cartoons. First, we had Long Haired Hair, which was like 1943. This is the one where yeah. uh, it opens with, uh, you know, a, a shot of a, you know, Hollywood mansion. It pans back and Bugs Bunny's playing banjo and singing a song. And 
there's down in the mansion there's a, a guy trying to rehearse his opera and the you know it's a big conflict between them then of course we get uh that has the oh that's the one with the magic uh the figaro scene yes with the the the, uh, the singer's head shrinks yes <laughs> pick it up, pick it up. yeah you know because <laughs> because he feed, he feeds him alum in the back in the back like i don't know what alum is alum is like these cartoons there were things like that in castor oil as a kid i don't know what they were i just knew they had magic cartoon powers Right. <laughs> apparently alum makes your voice go higher your head gets small and it's you know it's probably related to tnt <laughs> probably <laughs> then there was of course the immortal barber of seville uh or uh, the rabbit, of, rabbit seville. of seville which oh my goodness what a fantastic short so good it's just so good it's <laughs> so good, so good. Uh, but they, you know oh, they've done bugs and opera twice and bugs in elmer fudd and opera once and that is a well they wanted to go back to yeah and in what's opera doc they they address richard wagner's operas and the short opens with uh yeah this titanic shadow uh being uh cast on a wall lightnings flashing and uh, uh, there's a, there's horns this is clearly some demon lord or mighty warrior uh, and as the as the camera pans down and down and down and back, uh, it, it turns out to be Elmer Fudd and uh, you know a, a pointy horned helmet and and you know, trash can. A cuirass looks like a trash can exactly, <laughs> and his helmet lands on the top of the cuirass like it's just like right. like the armor is so ill fitting like R two D two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the story basically is uh, he 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 finds bugs. He you know, oh. Well, he opens with a, be very quiet, I'm hunting wabbits. You know, in recitative, which is, Mwah. oh, that's good stuff. That is, that's, that's good writing. Uh, and the, the story is he, 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 he finds Bugs and Bugs deceives him by putting on uh, a Brunhilde costume. Elmer falls in love, as he often does. Everybody falls in love with Bugs. <laughs> I, oh, I wish I'd done a cross-dressing count. There's a lot. All the time. <laughs> and especially especially regarding Elmer Fudd. So Elmer was like, I think, his most common nemesis. And he, he more than a few times, cross-dresses to mess with Elmer's libido. And it works 100% of the time. <laughs> 100%. 100 of the time. <laughs> the, 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 this cartoon's immortal. And, and it, it's just standard cartoon stuff in a lot of ways. But it's set to this magnificent music, as all of these were. And so many of the Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes are. I, I think that the music in these shorts is as important as absolutely anything else. Anymore. Yeah. I could not have told you until I was maybe 17 that song was The Ride of the Valkyrie, but I did know that the lyrics were kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. I, I, I guarantee you right now, if you polled Americans and played the melody of Ride of the Valkyries, at least a third of them will go, it's the Kill the Wabbit song. <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, and a third would say, oh man, that's from that awesome war movie. It's from that Vietnam movie. Yeah, exactly, exactly, you know. But I, I mean- We'll call it Flight of the Valkyries instead of Ride, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. You, you know, I, I, no kidding. This cartoon or these, these cartoons inspired actual opera stars to go into opera yeah I'd... like 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 they talk about it yeah 
<laughs> yeah. And that's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, that, that this is meant to be or expected to be the lowest form of pop culture. This is throwaway entertainment while you're waiting for people to get into their seats at the movie theater. And, and it's for kids. It's to keep them quiet. And you know, maybe it'll give an adult a, a giggle if they reference enough pop culture. But it's uplifting too. Yeah. You know, it, 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 these things can be so wonderful. Well, the thing with what's Opera Doc that's worth noting is that it was done by the, who's probably the greatest of them all uh, as far as the directors, which is Chuck Jones, right? His, his greatest hits list is just a murderer's row of the finest Looney Tunes you can find. But you know, when you look at his earlier work, he was really, really influenced by Disney. And his early cartoons were super Disney-like. What's Opera Doc? You know, he was, of all those guys, he was the one who was really interested in seeing what you could do with the cartoon and, like, pushing boundaries, going into weird territory with these things, trying new stuff. And I think with this one, what you see is you see Chuck Jones at the height of it, the style he's created for himself – but he's also tapped into that sense of melodramatic uh, atmospheric kind of things that make things like that make the Disney stuff work. And there's more than a little Fantasia in, in, in what's opera doc. Oh yeah. You know, and um, several others, you know, but it, but, it, but there's a fusion there. Like it's a unique distinct thing and it works so nicely. At this point, you know, the character animation is so, so expressive. Yeah. And I think Jones typically used much simpler static backgrounds and and so the, I feel like uh, the characters really stand out and pop more. Yeah. Than, than in earlier yeah. stuff, I really do like that about it. It's like seven minutes long. It's a three acts, like like it's yeah. a, it's actually a three act cartoon, which is like just it's an opera. It, 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 yeah, it's it's <laughs> astonishing. Like it, the economy of storytelling is is so impressive, and it doesn't skimp on just just the the hilarity of of these cartoons. I mean, in the second act, when Bugs decides to ditch Elmer by by cross dressing as Brunilda. And shows up on that enormously fat ass horse, and just show, yeah, and just where she shows up. He's a chubby. It's so fantastic. It's so good. Oh, Hilda, you're so lovely. Yes, I know it. I can't help it. <laughs> oh, Bold Hilda, be my wife. I have to say, I mentioned it before that like fear and magic helmet in my family for the better part of a half century has been something that we reference when we're about to either like embark on something that has no chance of success or like, you know, like you're going to go and like, you know, we're going to go ice fishing and it's 10 degrees below zero and we have our stuff in our arms. Like, here we go. Spear and magic helmet. Like it's just been <laughs> yeah. this vernacular that, that we assumed for when, um, it's an unwinnable thing in front yeah. of us, but we're, we're girding up and we're going anyway. <laughs> Magic helmet. Yeah. <laughs> I, when I was in high school, first off, I was deeply embarrassed to admit that I watched these cartoons straight through high school. Even this is one of my first like features assignments for the school paper. The teacher of the class really wanted somebody to write a feature article on Bugs Bunny in these operatic kind of, you know, cartoons mm. that he was in. He was convinced it was high art. And, you know, I agreed with him and I agreed to write the piece. I mean, the first draft of it got sent right back to me because um, it just, you know, I don't think it paid the right homage to the, to the source material. The guy wanted to see like somebody get into like why this is so good for opera and why this is so, you know, this, this is like, you know, high, high art as opposed to 
the low art of you know trying to keep kids quiet in a movie theater before the movie starts he had that kind of respect for it made me have that kind of respect for it i did write the piece and it, it did run in the school paper and it was the thing that sort of made it okay for kids to like admit yeah i'm in high school and i still watch bugs bunny <laughs> <laughs> to that to that point, Tom, uh, in 1992, What's Opera Doc became the first cartoon short to be uh, recognized uh, by the Library of Congress and selected for preservation in the National Film Registry, which makes it one of the 500 films considered most important to our culture. Yeah, and, and there and are two other Chuck Jones shorts there. Which ones are they? <laughs> Duck a muck and one froggy evening. Oh my god! I was oh yes, has to be. Who? Okay, we're jumping ahead, but yes, okay. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> that makes me happy to hear. <laughs> but, ser but seriously, if not those cartoons, then which ones? I mean, honestly, like they're just yeah. they are just. And we'll, yeah. we'll talk about all of them, but they're so good, but they're so influential, and just ugh, good grief. Oh, and one other thing, Bugs Bunny. He's been in a Disney film. He has, top that. He, man. he has. I mean, but, that's a big deal. Uh, so is Daffy. Was he in? Oh. You're in the same one? Yeah, yeah, yeah they're in, in Roger Rabbit, there's a dueling piano. Yeah. There's a dueling piano That's scene right. where he, uh, it's, it's Daffy and Donald. And, I forgot. I forgot. And, Daffy. And, yeah, and Daffy can't understand what Donald is saying. He's pretty convinced he's swearing under his breath. It's, it's, it's hilarious. It's really, really good. <laughs> I forgot about so, that. Oh my God. It's so, it's so great. It's so great. Um, I will say one last thing about what, what's Opera Doc is. It's worth noting, for, uh, among the other many great things that thing is known for, it's one of the very, very, very few cartoons in which Elmer Fudd actually triumphs over Bugs yeah. Bunny. What were you expecting? A happy ending? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so um, does anybody else have anything that they want to say about this or, or just about Bugs in general before we move on? He's my hero. <laughs> you could do worse. There's a great feature in an old Dragon magazine. They offer the D and D stats for Looney Tunes characters, and, nice. and I remember they 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 listed um they listed Bugs Bunny as chaotic good. And forevermore, I have used my acid test. What is chaotic good? Bugs Bunny. That's chaotic good. <laughs> and Daffy Duck was was chaotic neutral. I'm like, okay, these are like the pillars <laughs> upon which I understand the nine point alignment system. <laughs> are we sure Bugs is chaotic good? He's, you know why he's chaotic? Mostly. He, he, for the most part. He's vicious, but I mean, you know, he... he like I said, all of these characters contain multitudes, yeah, you know? Yeah, there, they, there is no one characterization. I don't, you know, I'm sure he has at some point, but very, very rarely does he actually start the ruckus. He's always, he's a big fan of, like, excessive retaliation. But, you know, but he's usually not. He's the usually proportional response is not really in his. No, proportional <laughs> response is not, not his a bag thing. In his but usually he's leaving. He's just he's living all by himself, and somebody comes and messes with him, and they they uncork a whole bunch of trouble. You know, like him beating a baseball team by himself. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh my god! That is one, two, three strikes, you're out. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> so fantastic. So I just, fantastic. I, the one thing about Bugs Bunny, I'll, I'll take it. He seems to enjoy inflicting damage for the the sheer pleasure of it like there's 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 absolutely an aspect of him that that enjoys visiting agony on others <laughs> no for, uh, if, for sure. if they deserve if it they deserve yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah if they deserve it then yes he in, in almost all cases. yeah in almost all cases there's exceptions but yes generally speaking once he gets rolling he really does enjoy his work <laughs> yeah. he's the best there is at what he does and what yeah. he does is very nice yeah <laughs> 
that's yeah, that's true. And you know what? I'd probably take Bugs Bunny. Uh, if I had to, if I was going into a serious fight and I had to choose between Bugs Bunny and Wolverine, I'd probably go with Bugs Bunny. To be honest, in a death match, Bugs Bunny will over almost anybody. Absolutely, really. I know. I was like, <laughs> I may not live. I know he'll win. <laughs> so, he'll so walk away at the end and wonder who that guy who was was with him. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. All right, so we're gonna move to the next moment of truth, and this one is mine. And, and I'm following up because it's the perfect follow to, to Bugs Bunny, which is probably the number two of Looney Tunes, which is Daffy Duck. He's a character that I have come to love him more as I got older and older, um, especially since you know, we said earlier, there's more than one Daffy Duck, like because he's a pretty early character. And initially, he's just complete, just slapstick, madcap, <laughs> just, just frenetic, just bebopping around, causes mayhem. You know, there's nothing there. I guess it was... I don't know, it's probably right around like the late 40s or so. A lot of these cartoons really hit their stride after right after World War II. Because what happened is they were making the cartoons. And then a lot of us growing up, when we saw these cartoons, we'd see the Blue Ribbon, you know, cartoon. And what that was is a that was a re-release series that Warner Brothers did during the war to cut costs. And so they re I did not know that they re-released them and they cut the front credits off. And as a result, Real aficionados have this big thing about is it a blue ribbon version or is it the original version because the credits are missing and sometimes they get hastily replaced and all that. So it's kind of a weird thing. What's the true version of the cartoon? But after the war, the budgets got much bigger and you can see the release schedule got much more robust, right? I think it was around then when Daffy started making this big transition from hebrephrenic, you know, bouncing ball of, of black feathers and this more... <laughs> This more just resentful, sarcastic, uh, more of a mental foil kind of a guy, a guy who was more self-aware than any other character that he was an actor in a film. He was career minded. He knew he was second fiddle to Bugs Bunny and didn't care for it. And he was always trying to prove himself and uh, usually the engine of his own destruction. And uh, Chuck Jones said that most people think they would like to be Bugs Bunny, but in reality, we're all a lot more like Daffy Duck. <laughs> and da Daffy Duck both both rushes in and fears to tread. And I think that's the thing I like. <laughs> and I think it's what I love about him so much because that's true. And he realizes it when it's too late. And usually when you suffered grievous harm. And I love him for that. And he's so he's so fantastic. And the, there are there's a series, there's like two series of Daffy Duck cartoons that I really love. I'm gonna focus on the solo ones, but there is there's a bunch of ones where he's paired up with Bugs Bunny. He and Bugs are usually um facing a third character who's the real antagonist but they're rivals and so they're trying to getting into they're getting into each other's face while dealing with the third antagonist duck season rabbit season duck season well, yeah the so-called hunting trilogy of rabbit fire from 1951 rabbit seasoning from 52 and duck rabbit duck from 53 those three <laughs> cartoons watch them in a row because omg they are so fantastic and there's just it's just the and the second one in particular it's it's all Daffy getting himself shot in the face by Elmer Fudd because he's getting hung up on the grammatical language that's being used. And at one point he goes he goes pronouns. <laughs> it's like what did they ever reference pronouns in a cartoon? You know, it's it's just it's just so it's so crazy. But I'm going to talk a little bit more about his his solo thing. So there are a couple of his that I just absolutely love. One's called Stupor Duck. He's Superman, right? He's Clark Kent doing Superman stuff. And it's just, it's, it's one of those where he's not aware, he's not breaking the fourth wall in that one. He's just a completely hapless superhero trying to do things. And of course, making a utter hash of it the entire time. It's just really funny physical humor as he fails to, you know, appreciate the real gravity of the situation and rushes in and makes a mess of himself. The next one is Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century. 
which is this hilarious send up of the Buck Rogers serials of that age. But it's him and Porky Pig get sent out into space to take over to, to colonize planet X to get this like the shaving cream molecule that's in short supply. And they get there, and that's when Marvin the Martian shows up, and the two immediately start having this tussle over who's going to control Planet X. And it's just, it's just so, you know, it's just, it, it's Daffy kind of at his height. He's angry at, like, he's so convinced of his superiority. He's so nonplussed when it doesn't work. And of course, it ends with the planet being more or less destroyed. <laughs> you know, it's, it's fantastic. And and it's a nice, it's a, it's a pretty cool allegory for the Cold War at the time as well. I think there was a little bit more, <laughs> a little more commentary on behalf of the animators and the director. Of, of the real world situation, you know? And again, I think that speaks to why these cartoons were and still are so funny is because these were adults, first and foremost, trying to make themselves laugh and then making kids laugh along the way. And I think that's one of the reasons why they age so well and why Daffy ages so well. And then the third one I'm going to get to is Robin Hood Daffy, which is probably one of my favorite cartoons ever. And it's just Daffy Duck is Robin Hood and he's doing his thing, just showing off in Sherwood Forest and Porky Pig plays, plays Friar Tuck who observes Daffy just being daffy and just starts laughing at him like he can't believe this guy's for real and he just he's so goofy and stupid and he's like no no really i'm trying to find robin hood and he's like no i'm robin hood he's like and no that just makes porky laugh even more and so the rest of the cartoon is daffy trying to prove to friar that you know he's the real deal and of course failing at every possible thing and and you know there's these immortal bits mauling himself in the process oh my god there are these immortal bits where he's like, oh, he's got, yeah, well, he's got this quarter staff. He goes, ha, ha, dodge, turn, parry, ha, spin, thrust. And then, you know, it bam, gets smacked in the bill and his bill gets, you know, mangled. That was like a constant thing, by the way. Daffy taking severe facial trauma and his bill yeah. getting mangled or like repositioned on his head in some weird way. Which just makes me laugh so every time like, I see it. Take a so... shotgun to the face from Elmer Fudd, the thing would be like on the back of his head. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> like backwards. And he's always like, little ball bearings. Yeah, and you hear like you hear like ratcheting back, so he snaps it back in place. Um, but, but the best part of Robin Hood Daffy is when he's on top of this tree and goes yikes and away and swings like to 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 waylay this rich merchant. And of course, he makes it 10 feet before he smacks into another tree. Bam! Yoinks! And away! Bam! More Yoinks! Pain. And away! Bam! <laughs> Yoinks! And everything gets more and more jacked up. So, then he gets to the bottom. He's just a wreck. So, finally, he cuts all the trees off and does it one more time. Like, yikes! And away! And just glides over all these tree chunks and then manages to miss the merchant and goes flat into a massive boulder. Inside of the, 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 well, he's the, Wiley Coyote in this in this one he yes. really is you're seeing here chuck jones is kind of prototyping this kind of purely physical comedy but also supremely well-timed comedy that becomes the bread and butter of the wiley coyote and roadrunner cartoon so it's a really really fantastic cartoon so that's my personal favorite even though duck and muck deserves a, a mention because it's one of those groundbreaking cartoons ever but i'll leave it i'll leave it at that to you guys to talk about daffy daffy has like the the, the distinct like eras of daffy and like I, I actually like that first one. Like, I could watch Elmer Fudd throw plates at, like, the hoo-hoo-hoo, Daffy. Like, I could watch it yeah. for hours. It's really good. I don't know why it's so funny to me, but it is hilarious <laughs> just watching him go bonkers. And, like, he always wins in those scenarios, too. So yeah. he's, like, bugs a lot. Oh, you skipper? Well, one of the things that's interesting is you mentioned about the six original animators and creators for the Merry Melodies. They had distinct styles. Yeah. And some of them were this more kinetic slapstick 
Three Stooges type of, you know, we're going to hit each other in the head with a hammer kind of comedy versus the more badinage kind of, you know, we're going to we're going to have dialogue carry the action. And it's interesting to watch Daffy be able to succeed in, in both of those environments. Yeah. My favorite Daffy uh, cartoon is definitely the one with bugs where the animators coming in and, and, and writing and painting over them. That's duck and muck. Oh, is that duck and muck? That's duck and muck. It's it's so funny. So good. It's It's just like, I I don't know. That, that that really is an important cartoon. No, no doubt about it. No, it it absolutely deserves its place in the registry. Oh my God. Yeah. It's just, it's for those who haven't seen it real quick. It's just, and by the way, if you're listening to this episode, go and just look up or get the get the set that we talked about at the beginning of the show. Watch all these cartoons because they're all so good. But Duck and Mike is basically just Daffy's in a cartoon that lasts all 30 seconds before he runs out of scenery. And he's like, wait a minute, I'm on blank paper. And he looks at the camera. He's talking to the animator and the animator is just doing the worst job in the world trying to keep this thing going. And then it becomes pretty clear the animator is actually just messing with Daffy and Daffy's like trying to hold it together because he's a professional, but he's like being increasingly indignant that this guy's messing with them on company time. <laughs> and then of course we find out who's the animator, but Bugs Bunny. Like and that's probably Bugs is most sociopathic, right? Like he didn't, Daffy didn't deserve this. He's just trying to work. He's trying to clock in. And Bugs is like, let's mess with Daffy. <laughs> It's just fourth so wall breaking, man. Like what, what else, you know, just owes a debt to, uh, you know, to that cartoon in particular. I mean, like it was just, it was revolutionary. You loved seeing it come up in the rotation because it was just so hilarious. I loved it. It didn't just break the fourth wall. It blew it to smithereens. Yeah. Like it, <laughs> it really did. It, it was just so, 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 so good. But Joe, is there a particular Daffy Duck moment that you really enjoy? I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the Robin Hood one. That, that, that's my favorite when, he, when he's doing it <laughs> with my quarter staff. It's a buck fifty, but don't tell him that. I mean, I mean, it's just like I mean, you know, it, it, Daffy had this relationship with us that Bugs didn't. Like Bugs would look at us, and Bugs always had the ace card in his pocket, right? Like Bugs was yeah. always going to win. Daffy was the underdog, and and when he turned to us in the audience and said, "Hey guys, we knew it was going to go sideways on the poor bastard, but we were with him, right? Like yeah, exactly. he was our guy." And so we watched exactly. this. We watch a Bugs Bunny cartoon to watch <laughs> Bugs get the upper foot and never let go. We watch the Daffy Duck cartoons to, to suffer with the poor guy, knowing that he's going to get physically abused. Yeah. Knowing that, that abuse Fair is enough. never going to stop. And that he's always going to wind up at best number two. And whether that's, I mean, the, the, the Sherwood Forest one, he, he winds up number two to Porky Pig. Yeah. That, that's is. how rugged a go Daffy is having. Uh, and, and you know, I, I love Porky Pig. I, I'll, I'll go ten rounds. And, yeah, and Porky Pig. But, <laughs> uh, I mean, this is not. You're not talking about uh, you know a frontliner, Daffy. The poor guy is never going to be top dog, but we love him anyway, and we were there yeah. for the ride, and we're in the sidecar going with him. And when he turns to the audience and he breaks that fourth wall and says, "Hey guys, this is going to be great," we're like, "Oh." No, it's, no, it's not. Not. <laughs> not for you. Exactly. No, it's not. Yeah. And and also how he, he holds it together. Like usually one of his, his big pratfalls is multi-staged, right? Like there's never just like one indignity. Usually there's one on top of another. And like in Robin Hood, at the very end, he's like, fine. And he, he gets in front of the merchant. He swims to the castle. He goes across the moat. He gets in front and he, he's like, he's got his back up against the draw. He goes, ha ha! 
And they just drop the door on him. And the guy goes, they drop the door. And, and the guy crosses the door. They bring the door back up, and he's still there, same expression on his face before he releases. Just- what I what I love about about Daffy, and we talked about, you know, you mentioned that you know he's prototype Wiley e. Coyote in some of these. Yeah. There is in Daffy and later in Wiley. E., this dignity in yes, utter yes, that's what I wanted to say. That yes, they walk Joe. away after they a boulder falls on them, or they get turned into an accordion because a car hits them, or whatever it is, they walk away with like there's a swagger as they walk off. Like I'll yeah. be back, MF. It's not over. <laughs> yeah. I may be Daffy Duck is pieces. all affronted dignity, right? That is, yeah. that is yeah. that is his thing. Yeah. But he will strut away. In failure and be like, and he, and he keeps coming back, and that 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 is the the grain of, of yeah. Wiley Coyote that we see later. Is yeah, yeah. You you dropped a mountain on my head, but I'm coming back. There's just something like an acquiescence to the role. Like he's gonna go off like after the cartoons over and have a salary negotiation, you know, with the animators. Me, hey guys, you know, like and a martini. Know, crap beat out of me in every episode, <laughs> and it's time for me to. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I think it's i think it's why like it's so easy to see ourselves in daffy because like we've we've all been him at some time yeah. or another i can't i can't think of too many times when i've been bugs bunny i know there are in times when i've been daffy duck though <laughs> I, I know i still remember them so tom i'd love to switch to your moment of truth now because yours is a really interesting one and uh it's, it's great it's awesome but it is unusual so why don't you take it away it's unusual and like you remember before when i was talking about how like it was deeply embarrassing for like you know kids in my school to admit that they watch cartoons you would still like see it sneak out every once in a while so like i'm having a conversation with an upperclassman when i'm a freshman in high school a guy by the name of larry roselli <laughs> larry and i are having a conversation with a bunch of other people about as you're an upperclassman, how you take, you know, more electives and you get, you know, you don't have to take all the same courses that they want you to take along the way. You can, you have some freedom over your schedule. And I ask Larry, like, all right, so how many electives are you taking? And he goes, oh, three or four. <laughs> <laughs> and that interaction oh. right there just said to me like a bunch oh. of things, you know, like a popular senior likes cartoons uh, he referenced this one character in an obscure episode that, like, I absolutely loved, and you know, so that did a couple of things for me. Like, you know, it, it made me basically not be embarrassed so much that I still watch cartoons <laughs> at that age and still, you know, <laughs> could, could recognize them. And then, like, Larry had the best Pete Puma <laughs> impression. So, like, <laughs> my moment of truth. Because I every time I see this short that he's in, I just cannot stop laughing. Like I watched it again today, and I still can't stop laughing at it. It's just it's got everything. It's got bugs. It's got the physical comedy, and it just it all happens with this one like sort of one off character that you don't you see him again on like one other cartoon. And he's got a different name in that one, but like yeah, he appeared in just this like one episode basically in 1952 called rabbit's kin this guy pete puma bugs is visited by this little rabbit who's been running away from pete puma decides to help the guy out and you know help him put a couple over on this you know guy this this puma that's been chasing him and it's got this just running gag that just cracks me up every freaking time like they're having you know tea or coffee or whatever and say how many lumps do you want (laughs) It's one until he delivers the line. Oh, oh, three or four. four. And he just gets hammered in the head like 18 times until like all these lumps come out of his head. I don't know why that is so funny, 
but it is so <laughs> hysterical. And like, you know, at one point he comes up with a defense for it where like he puts an Acme stove lid on his head and Bugs like hits him like 18 times with the hammer and he's like shows that he's got the Acme stove lid on his head. Bugs just produces the Acme stove lid lifter, lifts it off his head and all the lumps sprout out and you're like... I don't know why that is so funny, but it's so hysterical. And I, it makes me wonder, why did they take this one character who is so hysterical and just give him that one shot in the whole thing? And then you never see him really again. The stuff I consider non-canonical, I guess he's, you know, he's, he's taken off again. You know, they introduced this guy in 1952. You had until 1964 to give him his own thing. Why didn't you do it? He's so funny. Yeah. He does show up in a foghorn short. Yeah, in like 1992, right? Is that was that was that when it was yeah. later? No, 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 no. The Falcon short was actually within the original the original run. That's I what think. I thought. Yeah, um, he, he it, was, it was it was right near the end. I think he gets some cameos. Yeah. But I, I worry about with the thing about Pete Puma that like and, and and you know, <laughs> we talk about the vocal talent that goes into personifying all of these characters and the attempts that they uh, Mel Blanc and others make to God. differentiate between them. And they give them different vocal affectations, which for some of them are bordering on um, speech impediments, right? I mean, Porky yeah. uh, Pig More has a stutter. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. uh, you know, Bird? Sylvester, Sylvester. and uh, Daffy have lists yeah. that are yeah. brutal. <laughs> and some, you know, Elmer Fudd, I mean, they, they have either there's been some. Devil. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's been either some like, either been some like cranial trauma or something else has happened and with pete puma i watched that episode the the rabbit skin and i had a hard time not seeing pete as like either developmentally delayed or like there's something wrong with that dude and you know that's why sometimes i go back to bugs like bugs like bugs punches down with the best of them like he doesn't always punch up sometimes that dude will punch down and he hits pete puma in ways that i don't even know that guy does I deserved everything that happened. To well, him. Well, he was trying to eat. to eat a baby. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a great moment though when 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 this little rabbit who kind of goes unnamed and is distinguished because he speaks at like 78 RPMs, right? He's like, and Bugs like, okay, I'll go take care of him. And he goes upside. He goes out of the rabbit hole, and Bugs is like 100% a short of victory. Like he knows for certain there is no real peril here. And I think that's that. I think that's the difference that he knows that. Pete's not going to get better of him because Pete's such an idiot. But he decides to give Pete a couple of innings anyway. Like he could dispatch him in one. <laughs> he decides to stretch down to four or five, even to the point of deciding the little rabbit wants to get on on the revenge yeah. action too. So they create a whole other caper just to, just to abuse Pete some more so that the little rabbit gets a chance to get some licks in. So like this is like, yeah, this is like, this is bug that is most, it is most disproportionate. That's the one where bug says in the, in the uh, burrow, he actually says, I'm going to go up and give this guy a workout. Like literally he says, I'm just going to go and mess this guy up. Just cut. <laughs> rock yeah, but he's world. doing his part to raise up the next generation. Okay. Yeah. It was afraid sure. of into his leg, you know? Yeah. So can anybody here do the Pete Puma laugh? Cause that's like his most distinguishing characteristic that like, I can't do it. My voice is. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, I can't really. do it. Yeah. You're the closest though, Tom. And it hurts too much. <laughs> yeah. He's got this bizarre wheezing inhale of a lab. That... <laughs> and like, usually, 
it, yeah, it's like it's like when he's like talking and he amuses himself. He goes, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna get that little rabbit. Yeah, I'm gonna make a stew out of him." <laughs> Who's that comedian? He makes me think of that comedian. Who's that guy? Right, uh, Frank Fontaine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. So yeah, so what are you doing? Yeah, so this is like a direct reference to a guy of the age, I guess. Oh. Yeah, so, so a guy named Frank Fontaine. He had a, a character called Crazy Guggenheim, and, <laughs> and of course, and Crazy Guggenheim. And Pete Puma was a reference. Yeah. Okay, because I mean, according to the Looney Tunes fandom wiki, well, if you look at the, the older <laughs> cartoons, though, seriously, I mean, in part because these things were they're produced to run in in front of movies, right? So they often right. they often referenced and included stars of the age. But when they I, were Mimi, no, they absolutely were. But like when I was a kid watching these in like 1980. You know, all these right. stars were long gone. I had no idea who they're referencing whatsoever. So Pete Puma, to me, I didn't catch the reference at all. I just thought it was this guy at a whole club. No, I didn't know and just told five seconds no. ago. So like, yeah, I didn't get it. What? Yeah, they're referenced you know all the time. I mean, they're obvious ones. You know, like Bogey and yeah, Clark Gable. Yeah. You could get that. Those were yeah. obvious, but like, there are, I'm sure there were a ton of them that there were throwaway references to things that were happening or actors that were hot at the time that just disappeared yeah. or whatever. We all. Oh, Tom, and I'm sorry because he actually was right when Pete appears with Foghorn Leghorn. That's in Pull Up Surprise. That was in 1997. That was not in the original run. So, Tom, to you. The thing with Pete Puma is that 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 cartoon there's supreme physical violence type humor, right? But also, like Pete was just funny because the things he said, like his lines were hilarious. And it was like, "You told me to. You told me to. You told me to." Like. Everything he says is so off the wall. It's just funny on its own. No matter what's gonna happen to him, you know. <laughs> if I, if I'm referring to that dark caffeinated beverage I have in the morning to get me going, you know, three out of five times I'll call it coffee. <laughs> no more tea, coffee. <laughs> thing with Pete, Pete starts to figure it out. That poor guy, he starts to put it together, and he and Bugs is like, "Don't you want tea?" And he's like. No, it gives me a headache. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's so close. He's right there. <laughs> yeah, he's getting it together. But at the end of it, you know, he saves time and beats himself over the head with the hammer just just to save time. He's save like, time. you know what? I know how this ends. I, cut I've out the middleman. <laughs> Oh, I love that social engineering bugs, you know. <laughs> yeah. Remember, yeah. second cousin Paul Puma. You know? I know Paul you. Paul. <laughs> I still can't love that. throw on a costume that's so obvious, and, and yeah. you'll still yeah. get away with it. I love it's it. like obviously Pete, the point to keep lifting the head up to show you how obvious. Yeah, it is. like right. Well, yeah. he's Pete starts off and goes, "I know you." Like he knows it's bugs. But when Bugs starts talking as his fictional relative, Pete can't help it. He has to play along. It's this just, is why Bugs is the best. It's like Jedi mind. He can convince you of everything. Jedi yes. mind trick has got nothing on Bugs Bunny on full confidence. It's not Exhibit A of Bugs being a pro-social creature. I'm sorry. You're out. Yeah. You're safe. You're out. You're safe. You're out. You're safe. I'm safe. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Tom, I'm so glad you yeah. mentioned this one because this is like one of the most treasured cartoons out there and it's funny because for a character who really only appeared in just that one he's got a devoted fan base there are hardcore pete puma fans out there who just love this guy and, and you can see why he's a perfect character like he makes such an impression and uh he made it into space jam <laughs> that's right he was in the stands right to the extent that and the strength of like that one, one or two appearances yeah I, mean, like, I think the other one they call him like rocco the mountain lion or something like yeah. that but like he's, he's essentially the pink panther <laughs> With a brain tumor. Like, let's let's be honest. <laughs> Run makes me like just crack up. 
it's like he, his limbs are flailing all over the place when he's running away with the little rabbit you know when he catches physical comedy at its finest it is I, I i'm just a little bit appalled though that that you know more recently uh warner brothers made pete the acme luniversity janitor in tiny tunes adventures i mean no yeah he deserved better right oh no he doesn't they could have at least called him custodian <laughs> i mean environmental down punching down <laughs> all right so i'd like to move on to the next moment of truth and joe this is all you to bring us bring us back around the circle here you picked a terrific character again this is a character i appreciate more the older i got especially as i started running into people in real life who are kind of like this character so why don't you take it away when i was a kid i, I you know watched these saturday mornings or, or weekday afternoons or whatever else and like everybody else I, I i reveled in you know elmer fudd and 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 bugs and daffy and and, and the rest but the the one that i always sat up a little straighter and paid a little more attention and enjoyed a little more was when Foghorn Leghorn would come on. And the reason, now for those who don't know, Foghorn Leghorn is a rooster, uh, a strutting Virginian rooster. Uh, he is the cock of the walk and yet he's not all that he thinks he is. He, he really perceives himself as uh, an alpha male. The, the, the shorts in which he participates go to, to great lengths to, to show that he really isn't. Um, he thinks he owns that farm. He does. He really does. <laughs> he really does. He's, he's an author of casual violence against Barnyard Dog. He uh, takes it upon himself to unschool Henry Hawk, <laughs> the chicken hawk, uh, <laughs> fledgling. But the reason that I love uh, Foghorn so much is my father would watch these with us and loved Foghorn Leghorn because <laughs> the two, I can't this my my father shares some characteristics with Foghorn. Yes. Um, he is uh, a blustery guy, very confident, always has the answer to whatever it is we're going to do. And if you're doing a project, has a better way to do it. And so I think about these episodes of Foghorn where he's, um, you know, there's a, I especially think about uh, Egghead Jr., right? When, when um, Foghorn, it's, it's a cold winter coming to the farm and Foghorn's, Foghorn's cottage, his coop is not very in great repair. So he looks over and there's Miss Prissy's place and it, and it looks a lot better. He's like, maybe it's time to stop being a bachelor. And he heads over to Miss Prissy and he says, here's the candy. Here's the flowers. The courtship's over. I'm moving in. And she says, well, you need to demonstrate that you're to be a good father to my son. And here enter Egghead, this, you know, book learned <laughs> chick <laughs> who's, a, who's a genius and who never says a word and yet bests Foghorn at anything and everything he tries to do using, you know, <laughs> cribbed algebra and everything else. So <laughs> Foghorn is going to try to learn this, this chick and, you know, whether they're doing... Um, leg traps out in the woods or pitching a baseball or whatever it is. Foghorn always is, comes at it from this perspective of, let me teach you. Let me show you, boy, I said, boy, you're not listening to me, son. And he, and he has this, uh, this overbearing, you know, Uber male, just, just kind of, <laughs> I can't even describe it, but <laughs> the, 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 the poor kid looks at him with these, and he has this look on his face of like, you crazy. Like, what's the matter with you? It's so simple. Just do it like this. But there's never a simple approach for Foghorn. It's got to be, you know, do it my way. That was growing up with my dad. The, the joke always is, I know your life is tough, but I've had to hold a flashlight for my father. 
And <laughs> anytime I've ever done it, and to this day, anytime I do anything in my life, if my father's around, and I love my father, but he's always got a better way to do it. And yeah. so he would watch Foghorn with us unironically and laugh at the, the Foghorn had some of the great insults in all of the, the merry melodies, right? I mean, that boy's about as sharp as a bowling ball. <laughs> uh, he's like a plate of, he's as organized as a plate of spaghetti. Yeah. I mean, just, and, and just, you know, he would, he would, he would come up with this stuff, but. Um, so good. <laughs> so I, I just, every time I watch Foghorn, I think back to watching it with my dad and us both laughing together for different reasons, but it was something that we did laugh together at. And uh, my, my all-time favorite moment is when he's playing hide-and-seek with Egghead Jr. And he goes to hide in the feed bin. And Egghead's standing there. He looks around, looks around. He takes a shovel, digs one little scoop of earth out of the ground, and pulls Foghorn out feet away, many, many feet away, dozens of feet away from where the feed bin is. And Foghorn is like, that doesn't make any damn sense. And he's looking around. He's like, how? And he goes over to start to lift up the lid where he was hiding. And he goes, no, nah, I better not lift that. I might be in there. <laughs> he knows he's been had. He knows. You talk about um, Daffy breaking the fourth wall. That's all Foghorn did. He, yeah. he was in a constant dialogue with us yeah. the entire time. And he invited us into his little worldview. And I just, I, I laughed constantly watching his shorts. So, so you're talking about Little Boy Boo, that particular cartoon yes. with all mm -hmm. that comes from. And I have a special love for that cartoon because apart from watching these cartoons during the weekdays, as Chris is mentioning all the time, you know, my Saturday morning cartoon regimen was always, you know, it always ended up, no matter what you're watching, it always ended up with ending the whole thing on the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show, which is like 90 minutes. So just, you know, eight, eight plus cartoons. They had a couple snippets from cartoons that they used as bumpers in between cart in between commercial breaks. And one of them was the ha ha guard turn, parry, dodge, spin, ha thrust moment from Robin Hood, uh, you know, Robin Hood Daffy. But the other one was from Little Boy Boo, which is when Foghorn tries to teach Egghead how to, how to make a paper airplane. And he takes the paper uh, and, he, and he throws a simple paper airplane <laughs> and Egghead starts folding this crazy thing with like curls at the end. And he goes, boy, that thing will never. And it takes off with a jet engine. He goes, fly? <laughs> and, you see, and it comes around. It gets him behind Foghorns and opens up machine gun fire and shoots, six, shoots down, down his, air, his airplane. And it always, they would show that, that clip like every, like no matter what cartoons are running, that you could be assured of seeing that little moment. And I just saw that so many times and i just love it and i always laughed at it great <laughs> and the unvarnished violence of the foghorn cartoons he had this this ongoing feud with barnyard dog and he literally walked by the dog is sleeping just outside of his doghouse and foghorn would lift him up by the tail and just paddle the ever-loving daylights out of this dog with a two by four and then just set him down and keep walking and talking to you and then, or he'd run <laughs> Nothing if not prepared, you know. Like, I'm surprised nobody's mentioned the whole I keep my feathers numbered for just such an emergency line. <laughs> you used that a few times. He, oh, he, he's just so casual about it. Like, like this is so he's planned this so so minutely that he doesn't he just does it in passing. Oh god. It's muscle memory. 
he's he's one of the only like characters like who just constantly going around and just like like unco uncorking his unprovoked violence upon people around him like whoa you know but if you've ever raised chickens like we have chickens and we have roosters roosters are not pleasant creatures roosters are jerks true and they're bred to be jerks yeah and yeah they're supposed to be yeah and and they're bred to like visit pain and intimidation on any other creature that comes nearby including the hens under their care and foghorn in embodies that very effectively there's a, there's a um a strutting overconfidence to, to foghorn that just yeah. endears him to me there's a college professor that i, I had who uh uh <laughs> he, he, he he's no longer with us so i won't mention him by name he's not here to defend himself but he was those who went to my school will, will recognize him at once and he was uh he just he's you know sounded like foghorn leghorns like welcome to my class i'm gonna teach you about american literature and i was like wow we like where's the chicken hawk like i mean the first time i heard him i was like the rumors are true i can't i can't believe it and i had to sit there with my hand over my mouth the whole first session because he was just talking about like faulkner or something and i'm just like like this guy's like like, where's the little chick who's gonna put like trigonometry in the cloud on the chalkboard it's gonna happen any moment now and who's, I, I say, who's responsible for this unwarranted attack on my person? Yeah. Who I say, who wants to answer the question I just put to the class? You know, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> like, honestly, I couldn't get over it. And so I loved Foghorn Lakehorn before, after that, after that professor. Oh my God. It was, just, it was, it was, it just nails the whole, like the self-styled aristocracy of the old moneyed Virginian kind of guy, you know, just, it just punctures that whole thing. We talked earlier about like, just, you know, how, how the, these guys could just make fun of anybody. And they, they kind of did. There's sort of like a Mel Brooks willingness to just take a cheap shot at anybody they can imagine, you know, like anybody within reach was in danger of being pilloried by these guys, you know? And, and, and so that particular cohort fell under, under their gun sights, but man, Foghorn was just funny. He was just oh wait, son, you bother me. Oh, son, you bother me. <laughs> my father, my I'm that to me a hundred times. I'm from Virginia, and uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it had never occurred to me, like like when, as a kid, that the Foghorn Leghorn was a Virginian. It, it it's absolutely undeniable. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he is. He absolutely is. That's, that's so good. Oh, it's so we're good. in for a fight there for a second. No, that's North Carolina. <laughs> no, yeah. Oh, he's maybe, maybe straight Tidewater, but not once you get to <laughs> No, no. Once you get west of Route 81, totally not. Yeah, no, no. It's a... <laughs> boy, I said, boy. <laughs> so, so good. Seriously, as a kid, I would have thought Tennessee, but yeah. no, no, no. That was just wishful thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. This episode, we talked about doing a thunder round because there's just too many cartoons to talk about. So let's just jump into it right off the bat. So Chris, we started off with you having the moment of truth. So right off the bat, let's just just just, just check out a Looney Tunes that you know and love dearly. Mention it. Tell us why you love it real quick and uh, and, and what makes you still laugh about it. Michigan J. Frog. Oh, one froggy evening, 1955. Drop it. Hello, my honey. Hello, my baby. <laughs> Hello, my ragtime gal. Immortalized oh, baseballs. Mm. Oh my God! Just the best. I I, I still sing that regularly <laughs> in the car, in the shower, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's he's genius. Love him. That cartoon is such a great just sort of comment about human greed. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and and so much is done without dialogue in that one too. It's just it, it's and Chuck Jones at his finest. It's so funny. It is so so funny. Oh my God. 
Uh, Tom, what, what, what's a, a Looney Tune that you love and, and still still laugh at? You know, I, I like the ones with Witch Hazel. Yeah. Yes, oh, yeah. Witch Hazel's great. Yeah. Give Bugs a, a bit of his own medicine from time <laughs> to time. But like, I just love like she had like these little just repeated gags over and over again, like her laugh. And then she would like take off on a cloud and there would be these bobby pins. Bobby pins floating. <laughs> what the heck yeah. was that? It was just hilarious though. I loved it so much. Oh, she yeah, was so I funny. watched a couple episodes with yeah. her like this morning. Oh my god! Like, yeah, like she can get the best of bugs from time to time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that oh god, so funny. I'd love it. Joe, a, a Looney Tune that you still remember and, and and love and laugh at. Abominable Snowman. Oh yeah. And squeeze him and call him George. <laughs> I I didn't realize that was a uh, a mice and men reference until I was much much older. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, that was high school. Yeah. <laughs> All the time. And my first wife all the time would say that about cats or whatever. I mean, just like, you know, it was hilarious. Yeah, I've got friends that still use that line. It's great. <laughs> I will throw out there Operation Rabbit from 1952. It's one of the few Wiley e. Coyote cartoons where his nemesis is Bugs Bunny rather than the Roadrunner. In these, he he speaks, right? And this is the one where, you know, he basically shows up and he introduces himself as, hello, Wiley Coyote, genius, and hands over his business card and says, Wiley Coyote, genius. And then is proven the entire time why he really isn't a genius. Like Egghead from, from little, little Boy Boo is as smart as Wiley thinks he is. And, and Wiley is constantly creating these elaborate engines of his own destruction. But I love this because it ends with, at the end, he's in this, um, this shack. He's pouring nitroglycerin into a series of carrots that he's going to feed to bugs. And he's like, he goes, Wiley Coyote, super genius. <laughs> I like the way that rolls out. Wiley Coyote, super genius. Super and genius. and when he, as he's saying this, Bugs has dragged the whole the whole like shack onto a train track. And so as soon as he says super genius, he turns around and you see this train approaching and he just like closes the shade to not confront the fact he's going to get annihilated. It's just it's just so, it's so good it's i love so much of wiley coyote but that moment really really just cracks me up i adore it so thunder round round two chris go block jacques shellac oh my god he they, they love him in canada i'm rich i'm rich 90 percent tax bracket socialist <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> humor it's <laughs> so fantastic <laughs> I forgot about that part. It's so good. Uh, Tom, go ahead. Does the red monster have a name? Like, the... yeah, no, no. Uh, the red monster is the interesting um... monster. No, 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 no. I've got. Uh, I've yeah, got... I know the one you're talking. No, 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 no. I've, I've got it here. When the on. bugs gives when he's giving him, he's Gossamer. That that creature's name. That character's name is Gossamer. 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 Okay. Yeah. Gossamer. Like, I didn't know he had a name. It just yeah. When that episode came on, it was it was go time, man. That was a funny funny episode is that the one where, where bugs manicures him yeah yeah <laughs> combing his hair yeah. like, basically this is like i i don't know how like the artist came up with this like weird like just lump of red hair as the scariest <laughs> monster that lives in a mad scientist dungeon like yeah that's the scariest thing they could think of but uh yeah i, I didn't see him in too many other shorts and uh you know I, I just thought it was hilarious he's a great foil for bugs like bugs would just do turn on the charm and do the whole like oh, i'm gonna manicure just like he did to elmer fudd in the uh yeah the civilian you know? oh. <laughs> <It's so great. laughs> uh joe you got one yeah i mean we we mentioned him before in passing but yosemite sam is one that i've always enjoyed um oh, yeah. I, I i i love <laughs> 
I love the characters who things don't go their way and they're confronted with having to figure out how to, how to navigate that. And Yosemite Sam, things always go sideways on this poor guy. Uh, and and, and he, he's always enraged by it, but there's always a moment where he looks at a burning fuse or he looks at something about a, a piano about to land on him. And there's this moment of uh, resignation. <laughs> Yeah. is going to explode in my face again, isn't it? Yeah, and he just he looks at it and he's like, ah, yeah. <laughs> because he's so kinetic. He's rage. He's, he's yeah. jumping around, shooting his, his guns. I'm going to do a thing. And then he realizes the train's going to hit him and he just kind of sags. And he's like, <laughs> ah, yep. This is going to hurt a little. The gag with him is the whole thing where like he, he's chasing bugs and accidentally steps over the Mason Dixon line. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, no, the he jumps back on the southern side he's like now i gotta burn my boots <laughs> he's, not a he's, a Westerner. he's not even a southerner that's right well, and, uh, he has he has multiple identities they, they contain yeah. legions yeah, yeah, yeah now i gotta burn my boots i forgot about that one <laughs> so funny all right so i'm gonna go with uh another wily coyote moment uh although he, he's not he's really kind of not it's a it's a cartoon called steel wool from 1957 and it's the coyote but he, he goes by sam in this one and uh, no george he goes by george and and he he lives across the way from sam the sheepdog and the two get out and they basically walk together like they're going to work and they clock in and they assume their positions as he's the coyote trying to get the get to the flock of sheep and he's the sheepdog that's there to beat the crap out of the coyote typical roadrunner type coyote stuff except rather than the coyote hurting himself he just gets in the clutches of sam who we talked about Foghorn Leghorn being the author of Casual Violence. Sam, he's just this big, meaty arm with a huge bony fist. And he's always just like, bam! <laughs> just, like, just, just, just knuckles <laughs> this poor coyote. It's like just shatters him every time. But, mocking him into a ground like a railroad it, spike. It, yeah. It's like, a recurring one with him. Yeah, like by the end, like they're walking home and Sam's like all like messed up and he goes, you know, you're working too hard. You work too hard. And you should, George, you should take off tomorrow. Yeah, okay, fine. It's just like, but it's just, and it's just got this weird, odd meta thing of they know each other. They're friendly coworkers. And they're like, obviously unionized. Yeah, you know, and it's just this weird, like, I don't know why they tacked that on to bookend this episode, but it is beautiful. It's like, it's so, it's so Looney Tunes. They just did that for kicks, and it's just so hilarious. It elevates the whole thing, and I just, I love that one a whole lot, so it's really good. Uh, all right, Thunder Round, uh, last round, best round. Chris, you oh, got one more? I've got, yeah, at least. <laughs> Marvin the Martian, I guess. Oh, oh. Oh wait! Uh, uh, well, uh, hey, uh, hey! I'll pause, Tom. I I, I stepped oh, in your. Go feet. ahead, go ahead. You can take it. I got back. Uh, Mar Marvin the Martian is just the jam. Um, the he's space got jam. The space. Yeah. Sorry. He's <laughs> got the best voice in all of Looney Tunes, yes. in my opinion. And it, it, his his entire being is just the best joke ever. Like he's in this Roman armor for some reason, and <laughs> why is he like? A, a space centurion of an army of one and, and he's completely incompetent and yet technologically superior i just it's he's great <laughs> he is, he is i really like good. his just add water instant martians <laughs> <laughs> 
they do a lot. Like they just had water, instant boulders, dehydrated tornadoes. Like that, that's a running thing in Looney Tunes. Like, <laughs> it, was, it was it was a product of the time, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was clearly the element of a society that was fascinated by food and pill form, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like you this could dehydrate like anything. Fifties, like yeah, TV dinners yeah. just came out. What else can we? You know, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so fantastic. I can't believe I they it. didn't advertise Tang. <laughs> oh man <laughs> we're a lot of advertisements yeah for yeah yeah uh, cigarettes uh, uh, fun fact but off topic uh my mom helped taste test tang really? awesome against her will and she hated it so much that she forbade us from ever having it in our house we always asked for tang and she like now she she went to a private school in florida and her school was part of the taste test they're part of like the the field test for tech for nasa and so they always sent that they always sent her her school all these versions of tang they're working out <laughs> I love so she, Tang. So, uh, yeah, well, you love you love Tang once they got all the kinks worked out. Thanks to my mom, she drank all the versions that sucked. Right? She was like grapefruit Tang. Let me tell you something; it was terrible. <laughs> you also got some opinions about Heinz Thirty Nine varieties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Preparation B. I mean, yeah, exactly. Of exactly. Happens in preparations A through G. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> all right, Tom, you got you got another one for Thunder Round Three? Oh, uh, since Chris stole mine, I'll just tell a story about an episode I saw this morning that was I, I thought was pretty cool just because of one reference it made so it was i don't remember the name of the episode but uh there was a dog you know who basically this, he runs into a friend who you know now lives in a penthouse because you know he endeared himself to a new master and he's no longer astray so this dog gets it in his head that he's going to go do the same thing and he runs to the ritziest apartment building that he can find uh, which is inhabited by, you know, at the penthouse floor by uh, Porky Pig. On his way up, though, as you see him running up, you know, to get in the elevator to go up to the top of the building, Termite Terrace is the name of the building. No way, is it really? <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. I, I, I love saw that. that. And I'm like, whoa, how many people are going to catch that? that cool. <laughs> I adore it. That's so great. That's so great. Uh, Joe, you got you got another one for round three? Yeah, and, and, and to play off of what Tom just said, uh, I, I do have to shout out for Porky Pig. I, I, I love, oh, uh, I yes. love Porky. I love the yeah. fact that he is not even second; he's like third or fourth fiddle in the in the Merry Melody world. Yeah, and he's second guy, in terms of appearances, though. But he just the guy shows up. The guy is a game yeah. a game day player, and I love the fact that <laughs> I love that he trips over uh, complicated or long words and then just seamlessly just is unashamed to pivot to something easier. The guy will say, I'm so melancholy, just so darn sad. And he just, <laughs> just keeps on plowing it. And he gets He's the gone. last one in the episodes. Yeah. Because yeah. He gets, what does he say? That's all folks. That's all folks. So good. So good. Uh, my my sure. option for, uh, for Thunder Round 3 is going to be a double shot. And these two cartoons that are kind of obscure, to me, they speak to this really rich body of Looney Tunes that are like kind of one or two shots or just like odd things that sort of never really took off. Kind of like Pete the Puma. It's a cartoon called Feed the Kitty from 1952, and it was followed up by Cat Feud by 1958. And they involve um, this character named Mark Anthony, the Bulldog. And in each one, he discovers this little black kitten named pussyfoot right and he immediately and always starts like he's like raw i'm gonna kill this cat and then is instantly won over by the cuteness of this kitty who then crawls on his back needs his back with its claws is like oh and then curls up and sleeps on his back and starts purring he's like oh i love it so much and then he's dedicated to protecting this cat at all costs right and in feed the kitty he's trying to keep the the missus of the house from deter from detecting that there's a cat there right 
And one and it all involves a big joke where he thinks he's accidentally fed the cat into the oven and she makes cookies out of it <laughs> and, and feeds him this, she tries to feed him this, this cookie in the shape of a cat. And he's like completely just losing it. And then, you know, he gets reunited. He's super happy in cat feud. There's, it all takes place in this, this construction site for a high rise. And there's another cat looking to eat some of the food that Mark Anthony has laid out for pussyfoot. All the canine kill instinct that Mark Anthony is suppressing for Pussyfoot goes into this other <laughs> cat coming in. And it's just, and, and meanwhile, Pussyfoot is just like, is the fulcrum of the action the entire time and is just oblivious to the whole thing happening. Right. You know? but, but, it, but it's just, there's a sweetness there. Like you see this big bruiser who just suddenly turns and like just so has, he has a heart and he loves this little guy. And, and all that rage goes into protecting, you know, this, this little guy. And it's just, it's one of those things that just, there's a heart to it that I really, I always really liked. And I always wish they had done more with those characters. One more round. One more round. You got it. Thunder round four. Let's do it. Chris, hit it. Okay. Well, I wanted to talk about Henry Hawk because Henry Hawk is awesome. Joe, <laughs> but, but instead, uh, let me bring up uh, a short that I came across for the first time today. I think it's beautiful and you should watch it. It's called Joe Glow the Firefly from 1941. And it's really, really just lovely. Um, it's about a, a lantern carrying firefly who comes into a camper's tent at night and like lands on his head. And the cartoon is just him exploring this camper's tent. Mm -hmm. And and there's, there's very little real drama or anything else, but it is absolutely gorgeously animated in black yeah. and white that's like when they're still in like Disney shadow. And, and, and so it's funny cause it was obviously impacted by Disney, but they did it really well. Yeah, like, like, very like, Disney, but, ooh, ooh. but beautifully, beautifully done. Yeah. Some of those older cartoons are so fluid and the animation is just, Oh, so fantastic. So uh, Tom, you got one more. Yeah. Um, you remember killer, the vulture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was he appeared in a couple of those problematic ones. Like his mom was like alternately Eastern European. Sometimes she had like an Italian accent. I couldn't then went back and forth in the episodes. Like I, I couldn't even yeah. figure it out. But uh, like I, I just <laughs> there's something about like you know he's got three older brothers who are like you know really ace vultures and really good at you know picking stuff getting you know prey off the ground or whatever this guy's just an idiot and he can't figure it out and he's trying to bring home little you know bumblebees and stuff like that it's just he's one of those just lovable idiot characters that like you know you could do that whole like little line to somebody and everybody will instantly recognize who it is oh no, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, no, he's, he's really, really good. Love him. <laughs> Almost certainly that was a, 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 you know, a, a, a caricature of some film star at the time. Yeah, and yeah, almost certainly. Know who it is, yeah. yeah almost, almost certainly, yeah. Uh, Joe, you got one more for us? Yeah, I, I, I'm going with Granny. Uh, we haven't talked yeah, about Yeah, Granny! We haven't talked about Sylvester and Tweety. Yeah, that's a shame. Thank you. But, yeah. but um, and largely because Sylvester and Tweety, there's a lot of derivative, right? Like, I mean, to me, Sylvester and Tweety is a lot of, you know, what we see in other aspects of Looney yeah. What we haven't seen is Granny, is Granny, who is at turns, you know, addled and yet dialed in. And I love that about her. Like, she'll walk in a room, like, she doesn't know what's going on. Oh, the cat and the bird have this, you know, death wish <laughs> locked in going. And yet, oh, you kids have fun. I'll be back. I'm off to try on my new bikini. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you would be this, this Aunt May old bag, but then yeah. there were cutting edge parts of it. Like, you never knew what you were going to get from Granny. Yeah. <laughs> I love that about her. 
<laughs> just reminded me blaster. of a tweet thing that was like i guess it was one of the ones they did during the war where he's he's like an air raid guy like he's got the little hat and everything and he's running around telling all these cats like to turn out the lights and, blah, and it's uncharacter you know you got the twee bird voice that everybody knows and the, like the last line of the cartoon is like ow with those lights <laughs> oh the- yes yeah <laughs> Turn out that they light! Put, like, yeah. Their eyes down, like the, the yellow comes out of their eyes because they don't want the glow to, to the poppers. You know, it's, it's great, great. fantastic. So my last one is kind of like Chris. It's one I just saw today for the first time. It's it's just an oddball one-off one. It's called the Three Little Bops. It's a retelling of the Three Little Pigs, except um, it's all set to music, and all three of them are these total hep cat swing band. They're just playing this killer set, and the whole thing is narrated in song. And the wolf keeps coming in, wanting to improv with them, but he he blows his horn so hard it brings the house down. And so they're trying to like they're trying to keep moving from club to club. And every time the wolf comes in, like, oh, dude, you're destroying the club, man, and like you're you're totally harshing it on things. And and they finally, you know, they finally go to the you know the third place was made a break and tries to come in a couple of times and um, ultimately blows himself up trying to get into the club. And because he's the he's the wolf, he goes he doesn't go to heaven, he goes to the other place. Uh, and that's when they learn, you know, you have to get hot to play real cool. And so then he actually and he ends up joining the the band and, and playing. And and but the whole thing is this very un Looney Tunes really. And it's kind of to the original promise of Merry Melodies, which is just, you know, a, a total musical set with an animated, you know, counterpart. But it's just, it's just fun. It's totally different. And I've never seen it before. And uh, it's just one of those things. I don't think it has any kind of fandom to it. I just sort of stumbled across it. And I was like, wow, this is really different. I really quite, really quite liked it. And it was just a, just a ton of fun. So, well, like, before we finish, a final thought. You know, usually we do a fair bit of preparation for these episodes. Uh, even if we're going over something we know by heart, we often spend time going over it again just so we can, you know, maybe see things we haven't seen before or make sure that our memories of a thing are in fact as clear as we'd like to think that they are. For this episode, the challenge was a bit larger than usual. You know, this felt like an easy episode because we had seen all these cartoons like dozens of times already. And yet there I was trying to watch as many Warner Brothers cartoons as I could before this episode. In my heart, I wanted to see them all. And that's folly because by the time Warner Brothers closed down its animation studio in 69, they had produced just over a thousand Looney Tunes and Mary Melody's cartoons. There's no way I had the time to watch all of them, even if I had them at my disposal. But then I remembered that the cartoons I grew up on, the ones that really fueled my love for all this stuff, were just a small fraction of the total catalog, really. It was distilled from that sweet spot of time from about 1948 to about 1958, when the guys at Termite Terrace were cranking out their greatest work. And even then, what I remembered seeing was just a subset of that. It was a mix of the cartoons that made it to Warner Brothers' Blue Ribbon re-release program and those that my local TV stations chose to include in their rotation. There's a reason why I've seen Bucking Your Bunny about nine times as many times as I've seen Hair Trigger. So what had been for me this endless universe of cartoons with no perceivable beginning or end was in fact a golden age within a golden age within a golden age. It was my golden age of Looney Tunes. And once I remembered that, it suddenly mattered a whole lot less how many cartoons I could cram in before we started recording. Today, we live in an era when it really is possible to collect the entirety of a show and consume it all at once, kind of in defiance of the scarcity that had been originally imposed on its audience. For the most part, I like that. But I have to be honest, I enjoy the fact that no matter how many Looney Tunes I watch, I will never see them all. I will always live in a world where there is a new Bugs Bunny caper, where there is a fresh humiliation for Daffy Duck, some undiscovered comeuppets for Foghorn Leghorn, 
and those brilliant one-offs that occupy their own little universe for five or six minutes and then never again. That's a good world for me to live in, I think. And that's something that will never make these things old for me, even though the earliest Looney Tunes that I love is getting close to the century mark. People often say how they don't make cartoons like this anymore, but that's not really true. HBO is currently producing about a thousand minutes of new Looney Tunes drawn and written in the style of the classics of the 1940s and 50s. And it's not an effort to dive into nostalgia. It's a recognition that despite their often problematic nature, these old cartoons are masterworks of comic timing, slashing wit, beautiful artwork, and flights of cultural fantasy. They remain so beloved because they really are that good. Even when we remove from the canon those that no longer have a place in our world because of the way they punch down or view people, there is still, and there will always be, a mighty collection of the greatest cartoons ever made. This has been Moments of Truth. On behalf of myself, Tom, Joe, and Chris, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. That's all, folks. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.